Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of our episode seven review. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, we humbly suggest you do so before continuing with this episode. In just a minute, we're going to finish episode seven. Then we'll play devil's advocate and relitigate Birdie's motivation in episode four, A Cup of Time. Finally, we'll spend a few minutes discussing both the docuseries Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife, as well as the 90s horror movie Dr. Giggles. Without further ado, Hill Street, Take it away. Hey, Jack's back and in a wheelchair. That's actually more attention to realism than I expected. Yeah, but you know it'll be gone by the next episode. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. No good place to mention this, but why does Curious Goods now have a collection of inverted brooms? What was the thinking here? Hey, Ryan the Lion in a shirt, tie, and long pants. He even has some kind of super wide v-necked blazer or something over it that makes him look like he's pledging an East Coast fraternity. If there's such a thing as male plunging decolletage, this is it. He informs them Jean is on her way home, so I guess everything is tied up in a neat little bow. A rock star doctor was electrocuted, then stabbed in his own hospital with a host of reporters present the very same day a woman tried to shoot him, but hey, people die in hospitals all the time. If we investigated all of them, we'd never get anything done. You're all free to go. Dang, real shame Jean left town. I could watch a whole spinoff show in which she and Birdie from the Haunted Teacup episode drove around in a van solving mysteries. None- oh, okay, let me try that again. Dang. Real shame Jean left town. I could watch a whole spinoff show in which she and Birdie from the Haunted Teacup episode drove around in a van solving mysteries. The first pass was perfectly good. Okay. What was your problem with the first pass? I thought maybe I was being too sarcastic the first pass. Oh, gotcha. But either one is fine. Whatever you prefer. Okay, we can jump down to- Oh, I know. I know the drill. <laughs> not only does killing a man not have any effect on Mickey, nor almost dying any effect on Jack, when Ryan cracks a joke about how Jack won't have to pay Dr. Hallett for his work, they all enjoy a healthy gut laugh. And we're out. This time it's Chris Wiggins, Crackerjack Marshack himself, who gets the worst of the freeze frame. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, oh, they did my boy dirty. <laughs> what did you think of your first foray into the uh, Killer Doctor subgenre of horror? I just felt like there was a lot of missed opportunity in it. I don't know. It, it was it was a decent episode. I, I, I thought, like, the scalpel was fun and, like, the cutting of the, like, the scalpel being able to cut through anything was really fun. Um, I kind of wished. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I like the scalpel cutting through anything even more than I like the fireball that got hurled by Uncle Lewis yeah. in the Halloween episode. Yeah, no, the scalpel was, was fun and unexpected. I guess I should have seen that coming. I set myself up for failure in this episode when I brought up Reanimator last week i guess i was thinking um to mad scientist which they could still do they could still do mad scientists i guess um i was thinking like it was going to be really zany and um like a more like uh, test tube or something with like weird experiments more than i was thinking like a doctor killing people with a scalpel but i mean that makes sense that is doctor scalpel surgeon that's all that all makes sense i just was thinking more 
experimental scientist type doctor. So I was expecting more weirdness than there was. Yeah, mad scientist. Yeah. Last time we kind of combined surgeon with mad scientist and that whole genre, your Dr. Frankensteins, your reanimators. Yeah, because I mean, honestly, the I guess the true doctor subgenre of horror is pretty narrow. There are other examples, but all I can really think of is Dr. Giggles. And even then, I think that was technically an escaped mental patient who thinks he's a doctor or acts like a doctor. But, you know, even though true crime is unfortunately littered with doctors and nurses who are actually killing patients, uh, you don't see it so much in horror fiction. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is, again, why my mind went to like mad scientist type doctors. But but I mean, what they did makes sense with the scalpel and having the scalpel cut through anything was a fun, fun part of it. So it was good. I, I guess I thought this was one of the stronger episodes the pacing in it was like a little strange at times sometimes I felt like a lot was happening and then sometimes I felt like there were slow parts like when Jack was in surgery and we were going back and forth between them waiting for him in the waiting room I felt like it slowed down and then we'd just speed up a little lot was happening and then nothing was happening so the pacing was a little strange in this one for me but I I liked it um and I I like I said I, I enjoyed the object a lot in this one I liked the antique scalpel that could just crazy cut through anything i thought they could have utilized that even more you know yeah it was this entire separate idea the show is always biting off way more than it can chew it's like it doesn't even get the fundamentals right there were so many reality shattering moments in this episode but then it's also trying to be way too ambitious with Uh, You have a haunted object that both takes life and gives life. Okay, fine. But then it can also cut through anything. That's kind of an entirely separate idea. Yeah. And then you have a killer doctor. Okay, cool. But then you're also trying to tie that into Jack the Ripper. Yep, which they didn't do it a ton with the whole jack the ripper thing no they have a whole sequence where he goes out to find a victim and just doesn't yeah yeah exactly he almost kills two people and then just returns to the hospital yeah yeah exactly that was strange you know and i mean honestly the only time we get any information about what the blade actually does we can see that the scalpel can cut through anything that's a given we see that happening Mm -hmm. but it's really just jack speculating off the top of his head he's not reading through a tome on the scalpel he's just spitballing that maybe it takes life and then gives life right but that's not actually backed up anywhere right maybe this guy's just accidentally an amazing doctor i mean we almost see the opposite because his case was supposed to be nigh impossible and yet dr howlett saves him even though he didn't kill anyone when he went out stalking the streets that night yeah oh yeah that's a good point yeah it's so weird and again like Oh, man, you got to walk before you can run, show. Yeah. Get your fundamentals in place. Get your house in order. (laughs) Get those ducks in a row. Exactly. Speaking of Dr. Howlett, what did you think of the actor who plays Dr. Howlett? What did you think of Cliff Gorman? I thought he was well cast. He looked the part. He looked like one of those handsome, cocky doctors, and he was sufficient. But I thought he lacked sparkle, if that makes sense. Like, I thought he he was missing the X factor for me which is what I look for in actors. That's a very picky review. There was nothing that he messed up. It wasn't like, oh, he's really over the top or too understated, but he just was a little boring in the part to me. I I didn't think he stood out. I thought that he was fine. He did the part fine. I I thought he was perfectly believable, but he didn't have that quality that really made me want to watch him. 
I thought he was a little boring. You wanted Jeffrey Coombs from Reanimator? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he was great in that part. He was fun and interesting, and I didn't find this guy particularly interesting. Yeah, I thought Cliff Gorman brought an interesting awkwardness or weirdness to the character. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. I thought he was sufficiently awkward and creepy and intimidating. Yeah, not amazing. Although I... I wasn't kidding when I said that I thought the moment where he cuts through the door and then steps through it was an incredible villain entrance. Yeah, yeah, but that's kind of a credit to the show more than anything. Oh, that's absolutely the way they filmed it and edited it. Yeah. But I wish I wish that moment could have been representative of his entire performance. Yeah, for sure. What did you think of the doctor who basically ran the hospital and the one person who didn't think very much of Dr. Howlett, the actress's Doris Petrie? playing dr price she was good and believable i totally bought her in that part i thought she was nice didn't didn't overdo it served her function didn't try to steal the show or overplay her part but did what she was brought on to do knew her role i guess you'd say exactly between doris petrie chris wiggins alba may hoover and michael copeman knife store jim that is at least four members of this cast who were also in episodes of The Littlest Hobo. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to start looking for that specifically because there is some serious overlap between this show and that one. That's so bizarre. And uh, Elba May Hoover and Michael Copeman apparently are still working today, believe it or not. Wow. That's <laughs> impressive. Yeah, definitely. Believe it or not, Knife Store Jim was actually in some episodes of the recent TV show Fargo. Uh-huh. Might get the sense from the credit, you know, probably a very small role, but still pretty cool. And uh, Elva May Hoover was in both uh, The Handmaid's Tale and uh, The Expanse, of all things. Oh, I don't know that. Uh, it's a big sci-fi show that ran for a few seasons, got dropped, was picked up by another network, and uh, ultimately I think it had a long run. I think it was, I mean, she was only in one episode, but... Yeah, 2015 to 2022 by the time it was all done. Interesting. It's, it's big among sci-fi fans. It comes from a book series that were excellent and very popular. And then, yeah, nice long-running TV show. So uh-huh. uh, sci-fi nerds particularly dig it. But, uh, yeah, very good show. It's considered hard sci-fi, especially now that Star Trek is more like Star Wars. The Expanse is kind of filling that niche of being hard sci-fi, realistic sci-fi. Interesting. Yeah, a couple of these actors, yeah, still working. Good. So, uh, yeah, I'm very glad. cool, I think. Good for them. It's it's a grind. It's a grind and a hustle. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, you tell them. You would know. No thank you to the grind and the hustle. No? No interest in coming back to L.A. and trying again? No, definitely no interest in going back to L.A. I freaking love it here, and I love what I do. I love my day job, and I love the theater work that I do. And I'm getting, And it's paid work. I'm being – and I love – directing love directing it is it makes me so happy happier than even performing I do perform but directing is my passion like I just I, I love it I love 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 it so I, I am I've never been happier than what I'm doing now and it was never about like making it for me it was always about getting to do the work and I never got to do the work in LA and and it's not I never even really felt like I got to try like, I just, I never had any clear path as to how to even attempt to try. I was just lost out there. Um, and the thing is, is I had to kind of grow up and this is like a total tangent, but I had to kind of grow up and mature and find my work ethic. And I did. And now I'm a nonstop worker and I just, I love it. Um, so I feel like if I were to attempt at this age, I would be much more successful because I am now the type of person who can't sit still and stop working. I grew into that as I got older. But I'm just so happy with what I do here. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to go back. But 
would I f potentially find an agent here? Because there are agents here, especially like the Atlanta hub. Would I be willing to do that here? Sure, I would do some work here, but I, I just, the, the like hustle out there, I just find so stressful. And if you hit like the jackpot, that's fantastic. And I have friends who, who have, and I'm so happy for them, but just, I, I just find the whole thing so stressful. I definitely wouldn't want to do that again. Wait, you have friends where you're at now who've hit the jackpot acting-wise? No, I, I have friends in L.A. I have a friend in L.A., I won't name her name on here, but um, who's on, like, the number one show on Netflix right now, who's the star of it. And she, this is the second show she's done. She's doing phenomenally well. And I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more happy for her. But I also feel like, I, I don't know if I could do it. Just the, the constant hustle of auditioning and doing all those events and stuff I don't know that I would enjoy that I'm sure doing the show is incredible but yeah the audition hustle out there that I just never liked any of that it's funny how you get paid to act outside of LA but every acting gig here seems to somehow be not for pay I know I know it is so funny how that worked out um, but I, I don't regret any of it I had it I had an amazing life in LA and I loved it and I wouldn't change any of it and it you know formed me into the person I am but um, I just I'm extremely happy with what I do here. I assume by that you mean you got to live with me, so. Exactly. That is literally exactly what I mean. <laughs> um, no, that was that was a blast. Oh, man, I keep thinking about the whole Murphy bed thing. Why didn't we do Why that? Why didn't we if do that? If only either of us had been brave enough I know. to God. broach the subject of Murphy beds. It's the only regret I have. Every time I look around my living room <laughs> and my bookshelves, I'm thinking, ah, oh, you could have pulled out into a bed. <laughs> All you do now is hold stupid books. What the hell? We fucked up. <laughs> we fucked up big. But... No, I mean, all of that acting training I did in L.A. too, because really that was the only thing I knew to do was, well, if I'm not going to get to audition or do anything, I'm going to train. And I trained and trained and trained for like eight or nine years out there. And it served me so well because it's formed me into the actor and director that I am now here. And that was worth its weight in gold. And I still train. I train to this day, but um, I'm so grateful for that so grateful because it taught me so much so that was worth its weight in gold alone oh, very cool yeah glad to hear it glad you're in a good place now thanks i am <laughs> i found the light <laughs> so yes kids across america get on that bus and go out to la and train real hard and then go home <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the spirit don't try to make it don't you try just kidding but work real hard <laughs> It'll teach you to enjoy working hard. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of your current career and all that, what else do you have to say about this episode regarding specifically the hospital setting? I mean, you mentioned, I guess, that it seemed pretty real earlier, but what comments do you have on this show and how it depicted the hospital and doctors and nurses? I thought it was pretty realistic in the sense of they didn't do a ton of, like, extra glamour. Like, the costumes and the sets all looked really real to me because hospitals are not glamorous they are dingy they're ugly the co like the scrubs are ugly like all of that every you know most of those hospital shows are super glam and they're not <laughs> um so i thought all of that looks really really good and realistic there usually is a basement of old crap somewhere <laughs> that's where you keep all your important defibrillators and such exactly <laughs> x-ray machines mris yeah all of those yeah exactly the, all those hundreds of thousand dollar machines million dollar whatever what wasn't realistic as i mentioned was shocking the patient in front of the check-in that made no sense <laughs> as you mentioned having ryan dressed as a doctor in the scrub room and no one seemed to question that although I work in the medical field at an office and I'm new to one of these offices and I just showed up there one day 
working and people didn't seem to question it even though half of them didn't know who I was so to an extent it's somewhat realistic because new people come and go all the time so if you're in the outfit people kind of think okay she must work here but when it's surgery like that you think they would be like who are you why are you scrubbing into this surgery you know yeah absolutely I mean there should be a pretty tight team a limited number of faces in that operating room yeah yeah for surgery you think they would question that but yeah hospital wise I thought it was pretty realistic I thought they did a good job but like you said they had a really good set for it so it makes sense well speaking of the set like I mentioned in the script, the fact that you can see the trees blowing in the wind outside definitely indicates this was a real location. And I'm wondering how much of that played into why some scenes were so dark. And I have to ask, did you find it odd, the fact that this all went down in one day and that so much of it was at night? To be honest, I didn't even think about that. I guess I should have. I'm so used to the show being so fucking dark that I can't see anything. And being so quiet, it's hard to hear. So <laughs> the whole show is a struggle for me. But uh, yeah, you're right, though. It doesn't make sense. I mean, I get it. I get it from a dramatic point of view, letting it become night. And yes, hospitals are 24-7. But the fact that like there's an entire audience of people, a combination of hospital staff and reporters, I think, that are watching like all his surgeries. It's like they just keep these poor people on call 24-7 in case he goes into the operating theater. That's, that's what a star this doctor supposedly is. So it's just odd. And like starting a major surgery with Jack, I mean, I know you don't get a say, but <laughs> it feels like it's simultaneously scheduled and not scheduled. That's funny. I mean, yes, Jack was injured, I guess, in the afternoon, so they have to go into surgery. But it's not like Jack shows up in an ambulance and then, boom, into surgery. He's injured, and they do the whole, you know, pushing him down the hall, the Jacob's Ladder thing I referred to earlier. But it's not like they take him immediately into the surgery theater and just begin working on him. Dr. Price tells Dr. Howlett, we need you to do this. He at first says no. She's like, oh, but there'll be media there. He goes out and stalks the streets and then comes back. So it's not like that spur of the moment is what I mean. And like it does seem planned. But then at the same time, there's like journalists there. I guess they're supposed to be journalists. I'm only piecing that together because... Well, the truth is, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, these people are all hospital staff come to see their new doctor work. Right. Okay, that makes sense, because they're clearly not med students. So I'm like, okay, they're hospital staff. They're the board, essentially. But then Dr. Price keeps referring to the press. Yeah. I guess what I'm expecting is, you know, camera crews and such when I hear press. Uh-huh. But I'm like, okay, I guess they could be reporters. And then when I went back and rewatched the scene in the hall right after the surgery... There's one guy there with a notepad writing something down. And then it occurred to me, oh, I think, I think from that alone, we're meant to infer that at least he is with the media. Right. But he's, he's using this very large yellow pad that doesn't look like the little notebook you associate with like a 1940s reporter. Uh-huh. It's like, it's weirdly big. So again, he just looks more like a student or someone working for the hospital and he has no press credentials and no one has a microphone. There are no cameras. So... I think that is the show technically covering its bases in much the same way that we discussed with episode four, the way like Birdie is 
technically present in the building and therefore I think the show is asking us to piece together that she heard everything important about the teacup and by extension formulates a plan to use its magic even though we don't know if she even understands that magic exists we don't know if she knows what everyone does at Curious Goods or uh -huh. that there are demonic objects involved and we certainly don't get any reaction shots that indicate to us she's listening and plotting right. same deal here where it's like oh there's one dude with a notepad so yeah. that's the press we keep referring to. Boy, the rabbit holes you go down. <laughs> it's like scary. <laughs> I give credit where it's due, you but do. it is fascinating. You end up being on the other side of it a lot, especially as a writer, uh -huh. where someone will give a note to a writer that's like, uh, well, you never explained this. And the writer will correctly say like, well, no, on page 11, it specifically says blank. Right. And the person who gave the note like thinks it over for a second and is like, oh, okay, yeah, you said it there, but it doesn't feel like you said it. Yeah. Or something like that. And the writer just goes like, but I did, and it's there, so you're wrong. Uh-huh. But there really is something to that idea where you can convey something without making it clear that it's been conveyed. Right. That is possible. And this show just seems riddled. Yeah. Riddled with those examples where I can see the justification where the show says, no, 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 we covered our bases. We did everything we were supposed to do. You look here and here and here. It all makes sense. Uh -huh. But you go, yes, but I, as the viewer, am taking in so much information right. that you can't reasonably expect me to pick up on everything you're putting down. Right. It's a little bit like the whole reasonable doubt thing. So yes, there's always going to be doubt, but we ask you, is there reasonable doubt? And this is like, yeah, you explained it, but did you reasonably explain it? Can we reasonably, as an audience, be expected to actually piece together the dots that you've put down? A lot of times they show things, but they don't, kind of like you're saying, they don't show you enough before and after. They kind of just show you something. And I feel like they shoot all of this really quickly, mm -hmm. is my guess. So they do things and they're like, eh, okay, it's there. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's move on to the next thing. Let's move on to the next thing. And like, they don't give you enough continuity and they don't give you enough context. They don't give you enough surrounding things. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of like, wait, what What was that? What, what just happened? You know? Yeah. To them, because they, they know their intention. They're not picking up how confusing a lot of things are. Yeah. They're like not doing another pass and they're not playing devil's advocate and asking themselves, okay, but if I wasn't the writer, would this make sense? If I wasn't the filmmaker, w would the audience pick up on this? Right. Probably due to a lack of time and the low budget and the, the speed with which they had to work. But yes. still though, I mean, you know, you should try to do those things. I mean, that's just good storytelling, but it's informative to try to, to tease it apart. And I don't know, maybe to some degree, maybe to put it more in actors' terms, it almost feels a little bit like, like there's that line from, did you ever see the movie Being John Malkovich? Yes, weird-ass movie. Yes, it's a weird movie, but there's that great moment where John Malkovich is teaching a puppeteering class, and he yells at the student to stop, and the, the student's like, well, what, John? I'm, he's like, what are you doing? And the student's like, well, I'm making him cry. And he goes, yes, you're making him cry, but you yourself are not crying. And it just feels like, technically yes show you're right it works but in terms of what we get from it emotionally right it just doesn't yeah exactly i don't know that's a long-winded explanation but yeah that's uh what keeps me so fascinated by this show yeah it really is a useful exercise to try to understand it and to see are you the crazy one or is it just bad storytelling right so yeah who would you say is your favorite actor in this episode then uh i guess i have to go with I wasn't crazy about anybody. I probably would say the lady who was 
in charge. Oh, yeah, Dr. Price. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Do you think Luis Roby is getting any better? I do think she had some genuinely nice moments in this one, specifically given how awkward some of the lines were. She had some nice moments, but I also thought she had some moments where she was way too over the top in this one, too. I mean, they gave her some crappy lines. Like, she killed me when she said the surgery. Is it serious? It was so pushed. If she had just pulled that back and just said it, like, you know, very matter-of-fact... Like, the thought just occurred to her, like, wait, should I be worried? You could have almost sold that ridiculous line. Yeah, if it had just been like, wait, surgery, is, is it serious? Like, you know, saying it like, should I be worried? But she was like, surgery? Is it serious? And I was like, you're, you're killing me. This is so, so melodramatic. So, yeah, I don't know. She had a few moments that I thought were okay, and then she had a few moments where she was killing me inside. Yeah, I mean, apparently that was Canadian television, at least from this period. Make it big. Make it interesting and then worry second about making it realistic or believable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll have to watch some Littlest Hobo for comparison eventually. <laughs> yeah. I don't think either of us did for this one, but maybe we should both check out Dr. Giggles and we can circle back. Yeah, I know. I'm curious about that. <laughs> Get some true killer doctor stuff. What was the name of that Netflix documentary you recommended last time about the killer doctor? Bad Surgeon. Do you remember the name of the doctor? That it's about mm, i can tell you in one second hold on it's like dr paolo or something wow that sounds an awful lot like howlett our killer doctor from this one <laughs> dr paolo macarini hmm. yeah not sure i've heard of him dr paolo macarini yeah so they all say it because they're all foreign dr paolo macarini <laughs> where was he operating out of a few different places yeah, he moved around several times. Oh, yeah, he moved around, right? That seems to be pretty common with these medical things. Like, they get into some trouble and become suspects, so then they move locations. Exactly. Yeah, he operated in several different countries because he was getting in trouble, basically, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've heard about him or if it was someone else with a similar story. It's a very distressing story. I feel really felt badly for his victims. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And on that note... <laughs> Any other thoughts on this one? Uh, no, I think we got it all. Yeah, I mean, again, I kind of like the mostly pressure cooker nature of it on paper. And I mean, there was some genuinely interesting ideas there uh -huh. with a doctor who both takes life and gives it. And the idea that he was kind of uniquely positioned to be the only person who could save Jack at that moment, which right. is uh, an interesting idea. But then there's just too much reality shattering around it. Right. I, I feel like the show is constantly, it feels like it, it could be great if they had had more time and money and could do a few more passes on the script yeah. and have things make sense a little bit more. Uh-huh. I agree. Really interesting ideas at the core of them, but they just didn't quite have the resources to execute. Yeah, agreed. If you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now for free at the Interdemon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real, then imagine a troubled teen bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And, if you dig it, please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it.
So uh, just to be complete, just to fact check ourselves, uh, I mean, I think that is what our fans have come to expect from us on this program. Of course. Rigorous self-evaluation. Yes. I was rewatching episode four a couple of time with my brother and my in-laws, and we might have actually cracked how Birdie could have known that the cup had power and why she went after it in the first place. Do tell. You might recall that I said that Birdie stealing the cup made no sense because she would have no idea that it had any power. But here is what the writer and maybe the filmmakers were thinking, maybe in an effort to... I'll be generous and say maybe in an effort to be efficient. Uh-huh. Some might say because they had no money and just had to work quickly. Uh-huh. It's possible that in the scene where Jack is describing the powers of the cup to Mickey and Ryan, Birdie enters the shop. You might recall it's the scene where she shows off her like leather outfit, her clearly too young for her outfit. Uh, not shaming, <laughs> but that is the point of the scene. And uh, when she comes into the shop, we just see like a master shot of her coming in and then walking over to the stairs and we cut back to Jack and the gang and then we kind of cut to her coming up to the top of the stairs and she kind of just registers that like they're there. There is no close up on her face. There is no shot that's clearly meant to depict her eavesdropping or something like that. But just the fact that she's technically in the store when the item is being discussed might be the show's justification for why she thinks the objects have any power. Uh Now, that would be 100% clearer if we knew anything at all about Birdie. For example, does she know that they deal in actual haunted objects? Right. But we don't. So we don't really know what our baseline is for her knowledge of them and what they do. And then we certainly don't see any shot that's clearly meant to indicate she's actively listening and gaining any information from what they're discussing. It looks like you simply intercut these two unrelated things just for efficiency's sake and to keep the plot moving. But maybe that was her getting that information. Right. And then that coupled with the scene in the alley, which you might recall there's a moment where Mickey and Ryan show up at a radio station while Lady Di is on air with a DJ, and they basically chase her out of there. Lady Di runs out into an alley, and first the young homeless girl steals the cup from Lady Di's purse, and then Lady Di takes a few more steps and miraculously runs into Birdie, who is there for, again, I'm going to say no no good reason whatsoever, no explained reason, but I guess is just aware that Lady Di might be there and wants to see her for herself because she maybe thinks Lady Di could possibly be her old friend. Again, we don't know her knowledge of the supernatural, so we don't know why she would think that, but right. she sees Lady Di and, and does clearly say, Sarah, and then Lady Di realizes she's busted, so she turns around and runs off. Now, it's possible that in that moment, Birdie saw the homeless girl pickpocket the cup. Mm-hmm. And then why she didn't go after the homeless girl at that moment, I don't know. But it's possible she would have seen that. And then, you know, when the camera dollies over and Birdie and Lady Di see each other, it's like, oh, well, Birdie was standing there. So maybe we're meant to also piece together that she saw the cup being lifted. But it doesn't really work because, again, she doesn't go after the girl at that moment. 
and then two, that's asking you to do a lot off screen. Right. But it, it occurred to me in watching episode six, it dawned on me that the same way we have a magician putting a roofie into someone's drink, and then we dolly over and we see that the person who's about to be drugged is just watching him do it. Yeah. Is just such an odd choice. Right. The way that that's revealed to us. I mean, you could have easily dollied over and then had the woman's back to the magician and then have her turn around as he approaches. That would have worked fine, but for some reason they didn't do that. She's already staring in that direction. So in that case, you're reverse engineering it and going, wait a minute, she just saw him do that. And then using that same mindset, I'm like, oh, well, back in that alley scene, the camera dollies over and it's like, well, Birdie is standing right there facing that direction. So although we don't get any clear cutaway, maybe she saw the theft happen. And so maybe that's why she's then in the park later watching Mickey and Ryan try to track down the cup. It's tenuous, but it does make a little bit of sense. Right. They do things like that. Like we get one shot that's Birdie's POV as she like pulls down a branch and peers through the woods at Mickey and Ryan. So it's like, okay, you're indicating that someone's watching, but at this moment show, you really needed to be more clear on who it was. If you're going to try to have us connect these dots and try to understand what the characters are thinking. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, yeah, that's some masterful shit that you guys are working on. You guys sound borderline insane trying to piece <laughs> this together. So if that's what it takes to figure the show out, I think they need to do better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I uh, will appreciate that. Uh, yes, we were borderline insane. Uh, <laughs> basically trapped with uh, icy roads outside and nowhere to go. So uh, we got diligent about this. And I will credit my in-laws and largely my brother-in-law with suggesting that we are, we are meant to take what seems like two unrelated intercut shots and piece together. Oh, I guess she was hearing all that super important information the entire time. But the audience just wasn't being given any visual shots to establish that she was actively processing it and taking it in and formulating a plan. Right. I guess Canadian shows just don't do visual exposition. Uh-huh. They, they, just, they just dump all the pieces on the board and, and you're meant to put it together yourself. <laughs> they ask a lot, I guess. I guess we like our media process <laughs> here just like we like our food in America. And you are up for the challenge of putting it together. You will watch it as many times as it takes. I will. That is the joy. That is what keeps me coming back to this show. It asks so, so much from the viewer. <laughs> And I bet they never knew they would get a fan as big as you. Well, you know, it's one of those things where it's the more you have to participate, the more you feel like you're actually creating the show to some degree. Right. And the better you remember it and the deeper impression it makes. Yeah. So, yeah, just happy to be on the journey. That's pretty cool. I respect it. I respect it a lot. I enjoy kind of following you along and you tell me what's going on and I go, oh, okay, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, uh, I should make my own subtitled versions. You really should. Where I actually explain to you what's happening in the storyline because it is not clear. Yeah, you know what? You make a good point because watching this show is like watching a show in a foreign language but without the subtitles turned on. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just working off the visuals here and I'm trying to make sense of all the relationships and why things are happening. And sometimes I kind of can, but sometimes, like, I just I have no clue. <laughs> this yeah. thing might as well be in Portuguese. I know. Welcome to the first of our probably recurring segment, Devil's Advocate. Woo-woo! Ladies and gent- I'm sorry, what was that? My bad. My, nope, I said nothing. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you did, but okay. I'll take your true word. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I come before you today to prove once and for all that the storytelling in Friday the 13th, the series, episode four, A Cup of Time, 
is airtight. Are we really doing this again? Order! Ma'am, please state your name. Hill Street. And would you please go to minute 1730 and tell us what occurs? Uh, the little homeless girl. How is there a 10-year-old living in a public park in a Canadian city? The cops are literally right there. Please just answer the question. You didn't ask a question. Order! Are you the judge, too? Objection! The little homeless girl shows Mickey and Bertie the bracelet Lady Di gave her. Yes, but Bertie recognizes it as belonging to her missing friend Sarah, correct? Uh-huh. So they believe Bertie's friend Sarah gave her the bracelet. Well, no. The girl says the woman who gave it to her was pretty and had hair like fire. So as far as Mickey and Bertie are concerned, the show has established a connection between Sarah and Lady Di? I guess. And does the girl go on to establish a connection between Lady Di and the teacup being used for murder? Yes. No more questions, Your Honor. So, we're done? For my next question, go to minute 1850. What does Mickey ask Bertie in the car? If Bertie has a picture of Sarah. Does she? Yes, in her files. And then what happens? The DJ announces Lady Di will be live in their studio. And then? Lady Di starts playing on the radio. And? Birdie says Sarah would laugh at the song because it's the same nursery rhyme she used to sing. Interesting. Another connection between Sarah and Lady Di. Please go to minute 1951 and tell us what's happening. I have no idea. Your Honor, permission to take the stand? Lawyers can't do that. Overruled. In Curious Goods, Ryan is painting a Lady Di album cover to make Lady Di look older. And what is he using for reference? A photo of someone? The photo of Sarah, referred to moments ago in the car. But she doesn't have snow-white hair like Bertie said in the park. That's actually a really good point. Well, maybe it was taken the year before she went white. The point is, it's old Sarah. Side by side with what Lady Di would look like if aged up to 70. But it's the first time we've seen Sarah, so we don't even realize that. What happens next? Jack talks about how the teacup works. What else? Birdie enters. So you admit Birdie could learn right here how the teacup works. But there's no reaction shot, no shot of Birdie listening in. We don't even know if she believes in magic. Yes or no, please. <sighs> yes. And then does Birdie walk over and see both the photo of Sarah as well as the painted album cover depicting Lady Di as an old woman? But she doesn't react. There's no close-up. She doesn't say or do anything to make us think she thinks Sarah and Lady Di yes are or the no? same... Yes. I rest my case. Now we're done? Go to minute 24 in the alley outside the radio station. Earlier, did the radio in the car tell Mickey, Ryan, and Birdie where and when Lady Di would be? Not that she would run out into the alley. Objection! And the homeless girl had no idea. And is it possible Birdie saw the homeless girl steal the teacup from Lady Di? I don't know. It happened before we saw Birdie. But is it possible? Yes! And what name does Birdie use to address Lady Di? Sarah. Well... That sounds like another firm connection to me. So she believes in magic? Objection, Your Honor. Leading the attorney. That's not a thing. Go to minute 2756. Birdie in the park. What do you see? Birdie in the park? Yes, well, you agree that she saw Lady Die, a.k.a. Sarah, now looking a little older, run off into the night. And she knows Lady Die kills in the park, correct? But does she think Lady Die has the teacup or not? Irrelevant. Jury, disregard the question. Yes. Birdie knows Lady Di operates in the park and that the homeless girl lives in the park. So it makes sense Birdie would come here? Yes. And as to whose POV it is watching Mickey Ryan and the homeless girl leave the park, 
Bertie or Lady dies. We'll learn in just a moment it was obviously Bertie. Isn't that right? I suppose. And, in fact, every aspect of her motivation has a perfectly logical explanation, does it not? Yes. Well, then the system works and the devil has won. Very cute. I like it. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Well, Hill Street, I got uh, an exciting little piece of news for you. Go on. We got fan mail from Canadians. Wow. No kidding. Do tell. A Canadian, anyway. Half of a podcasting team. We got a message from Devin of the Friends and Factoids podcast. Her partner is Stephanie. I did start listening to some episodes of their show, and they are delightful. Awesome. Uh, I'm sticking with delightful because I feel like I'm in a little bit of a box. Almost any compliment I, I want to give them, I feel like is it's just going to read as condescending. Yeah. But I think I can stick with delightful, and uh, we'll, we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have great chemistry together and uh, an interesting show where they basically just discuss esoterica. It's actually the second esoterica-based podcast I listen to. (laughs) It is an interesting show and uh, very well done. I plan on listening to some more episodes here pretty soon. That's awesome. Oh, and you know what originally caught Devin's attention? What? All of our mentions of The Littlest Hobo. (laughs) Not surprised at all. I'm telling you, that show has legs. Absolutely. Here's what we do at Hill Street. We pivot. To The Littlest Hobo podcast? We're now, yes, we're now the Friday the 13th slash Littlest Hobo podcast. I love it. That's what I want to be known for. It's not our job to tell you what to do with the rats. It's just our job to get you rats stat. Which one? Which one? Which one? <laughs> ah, good times. That is so fucking funny. That bit is so good. I know. I love it. It's, that can be our next project when we get through all these episodes. We'll watch <laughs> Silicon Valley episodes and review those. So funny. Back to business. First, I'd like to discuss with you Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife, which... Did you realize that that is the full title? Yes, I did. Which is what I was so curious about when I saw the title. I was like, is this some guy who lures women in romantically and then performs like plastic surgery on them or something? That's The title was a little bit misleading for sure. Wow, I'm going to get working on that screenplay. (laughs) I mean, the title is misleading though because his love life was a very small part of what was going on, you know? Yeah, it's a framing device and it's it's a weird boat that they're in, I admit, because they're kind of talking about duplicity in two totally unrelated areas. There's obviously mm-hmm. the career duplicity and then the lies in his love life and his home life. So they're in a little bit of a box, but that does not negate the fact that Bad Surgeon, while not a great title all by itself, is heads and tails better than Love Under the Knife, which I put right up there with a cup of time. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like and they, they both make my skin crawl saying them out loud. I know. And weirdly enough, the trailer for Bad Surgeon for me, like the little clip that it played me on Netflix, mm-hmm. was primarily showing his lies in his love life and not really about his surgeries. And I was like, what is this? When I watched the trailer, then I thought it was going to be about a surgeon who just lied to a bunch of women to date them. And I was like, what? I was like, I have to watch this because I can't tell what's going on. And it, it wasn't about that either. It was it was very confusing. Don't, that's how they get you. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but it's basically the premise of our podcast. Like, what is this show? I have to know. <laughs> yeah, that's how we get you. Yeah. 
it doesn't look like it's going to be good. We just want to know what it is. <laughs> I know. I, I, yeah. Let us not cast stones is what I'm saying. I think we live in a glass house here at Hill Street. <laughs> That's fair. A glass apartment full of glass Murphy beds. I can still hate in other people what I hate in myself, though, you know? This is true. Hate the player and the game. <laughs> That's my motto. Oh, <laughs> uh, you finally ditched YOLO, huh? You finally moved on? Oh, no. I still like to keep up with YOLO. That's a good one. The kids roll their eyes when you flash that. YOLO. <laughs> I don't think that's ever been cool, but I like to pretend it's cool. YOLO! YOLO, baby! YOLO, let's get some froyo. <laughs> He's old school Hollywood, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally random, but I'm just asking because I'm curious. Are you a froyo kind of girl? Oh, or yeah. Or do you go straight to ice cream? Um, I like froyo because I like to load it up with all the toppings, and the froyo just kind of serves as a way to get the toppings into my mouth. Like Delivery device for toppings? Yeah. I just really want the peanut butter cups, but, you know, it's a nice way to mix up eating peanut butter cups instead of just eating them straight. Then you can eat them with ice cream. Right. If I eat ice cream, I want it to be chock full of candy, you know? Uh, just chock-a-block. Mm-hmm. Yep. Chunky chunky. Oh, yeah. I know, I know if... <laughs> I'm sure you've you've slipped the froyo guy a twenty from time to time to look the other way while you just dive headfirst into the fixins like it's a bathtub. <laughs> That's my dream. <laughs> my apartment in North Hollywood, there was a subway, and right next to it was like a f a frozen yogurt place. And sometimes I'd head out for a nice three thousand calorie meal, and I would get a foot long sub with chips and a drink, and then I would go get froyo and like load it up with candy, and I would just eat all of that and. That was a nice Tuesday, you know? Ma'am, I'm sorry. You can't bring in a Subway sub and then open it up and put, like, crushed up Oreos and Captain <laughs> Crunch and gummy bears and whatnot on it. I was like, oh, yeah, watch me. <laughs> Please tell me when you were at the Subway, if the guy was like, uh, do you want oil on that? You were like, uh, no, it's the chicken breast with veggie. I'm obviously watching my calories. Exactly, yeah. No, I'm watching my figure. No, None of that, but I will take four bags of chips and two Cokes with my Froyo. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that comes with a chocolate chip cookie, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, their cookies are so good. <laughs> so, I was just watching someone. Um, oh, yeah, I was listening to a fitness YouTube channel, and the guy was using the example of going to Subway and then like, just walking in and asking for, like, a soda and a bunch of cookies. <laughs> like, oh, that, yeah, that seemed like an absurd example, but prove us wrong, Hill Street. <laughs> prove us wrong. You're just quietly moving down the sandwich line without asking for anything. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just one poor employee opposite you that has nothing to do while people on both sides are like, you know, getting these elaborate sandwiches made. Yep, exactly. It's me. <laughs> so, yeah, circling back to Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife. Oh. We're not going to do a beat-by-beat -beat breakdown of the entire miniseries docudrama or whatever they call it these days but we will go into spoilers and uh, discuss several aspects of it first thing i wanted to ask you and really the primary thing is i never fully understood how he was allowed to do what he did i mean he wasn't performing these surgeries in his basement surgery room he was going into hospitals and was like, we're going to put this artificial trachea into a human being, but it's going to be okay because although the trachea is entirely plastic, it's covered in stem cells. And it feels like the most hand wavy, like the way a child thinks about medicine. Oh, so is like the trachea made of like a lattice of stem cells that have somehow been formed into like a new compound, some kind of organic material or something. No, it's plastic. 
but it's okay because it's covered in stem cells. It feels like you might as well be saying like, oh, it's plastic, but it's covered in pixie dust, so it'll be fine. Yeah, right. I feel like that's losing the forest for the trees. Like, I feel like if that was real, every medical community that he proposes this to should be like, whoa, wait, hang on a second. You found a way to just cover plastic with stem cells and have the stem cells survive and thrive and bond with the plastic and then it can just be put into a human being like i don't think we have that technology if i'm not mistaken right and yet somehow these different institutions three different institutions he went to mm -hmm. was he just showing up with a plastic tube and saying like oh yeah no it's good i covered it in stem cells at home <laughs> you know more about the medical industry than i do right can you shed any light on that like i I would think like the person that like, okay, it's surgery time and like an assistant, you know, some lowly assistant would come in and be like, well, do you have the plastic trachea? And like, yeah, I've got a piece of plastic tubing here, but I mean, it's, it's not covered in any stem cells. I mean, it's just a piece of plastic. Obviously we run tests on it before we put it into a person and there's nothing growing on this. Right. Well, you know, it, the whole thing was a huge fail in the medical field as far as people doing, dotting their I's and crossing their T's, people not checking into things, people not doing the research, people not checking in on him and making sure he was as legit as he was making himself sound, which I have to say, working in the medical field, it's it's been interesting to see behind the curtain with doctors because I work with some doctors, I think they're great, I think they're brilliant, I think they're they're wonderful doctors and they care. And then but it is alarming to me how often doctors, I don't want to say don't know what they're doing, but just they come off way more confident when they come in to talk to you than they really are a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. It's easy to forget how they're just people kind of learning as they go the whole time. Okay. Um, and, you know, so I do ultrasound and I will go do a scan on a patient and I'll see something concerning and I'll go discuss it with the doctor and the doctor will say to me, often they will go, what should I do? Like, sh do you think they need surgery? Do you think they should be on bed rest? Like, I what do you think I should do? And I'll think... You're asking me? I don't know. I did my job. I gave you picture. I show you picture. I say picture don't look good. You take it from there. So, you know, not that I ever mind the doctors consulting me. I appreciate it and I find it, you know, respectful. But but it just will shock me sometimes how often they don't really know what they're doing either. And all that to say that we put a lot of trust in doctors that they know what they're doing. They've done their research, you know, and, and often a lot of times with a doctor like this, it's not the case. And I think that he came in so confident and said, he lied. He lied many, many times to many people saying, we've done all of this research. We've tested this. It's amazing. Wait till you see it. I had a huge success with this person and people didn't look into it. They took him at his word. And yeah, like you said, people just, he said, oh, I have this plastic airway that's covered in stem cells. And when we put it in the patient, they thrive, they flourish. And I have this patient and he just showed them a little bit of what happened with that patient, which is I did the surgery, they survived the surgery, and he didn't tell them that they died a week later. So people just weren't looking into it. They were taking him at his word. And, you know, people, when you see a confident, quote unquote, world renowned surgeon, People don't think, well, I should look into this. I don't trust him, you know? Yeah, I totally understand that. I mean, I certainly understand, obviously, the patients. But from the industry point of view, yeah, just kind of stunning that obviously the ball was dropped and they didn't look into his past. But even just on the day, I don't understand how he was able to just propose this thing that apparently no one has heard of. I mean, you know, you hear about studies and tests and trials and medical journals and doctors going to conferences to keep up on the latest developments. 
just seems amazing that you can have one guy show up and say, I've got a procedure that absolutely no one else in the world does. Only I know how to do this. And everyone's just like, oh yeah, sure, go for it. Our operating room is your operating room. You want us to run any tests on the trachea to make sure that the stem cells are, you know, still thriving? No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. You know what? I'll just, I'll just show up on the day with the tube and do it myself. Basically, I almost hate giving him the title of doctor, but Dr. Paolo Macchiarini almost sounds as bad as Dr. Howlett in the episode of Friday the 13th, the series, where he just apparently is showing up with his old Victorian scalpel and everyone's like, oh, okay, you, you don't want us to like put it with all the other tools and have it prepped for you. No, 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 that's fine. I'll just show up with my own scalpel, my own... <laughs> My own 19th century scalpel. Okay, would you want us to take it away after and clean the blood off it? No, 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 I'm fine. I'll, I'll do that at home. Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It just seems mind-boggling. It is crazy to me, too, that he just kept repeatedly doing it, thinking in his crazy brain that at some point it would be successful. Like, I have to think that he thought at some point it would work on someone, and I don't know why he thought that. Right, if only from a perspective of getting away with it. Yeah, it's like... He just continued to put these in people, and it's like at some point he thought it would take for someone, and I'm like, this was never going to work. You can't put a piece of plastic in someone as a body part and think it's it'll just magically work on someone. I mean, it was just crazy, but it kind of goes along with my theory that I've said to my mom several times in my life, which is confidence will take you almost anywhere you want to go. People do not question you if you're confident. It's the same thing I said to you on one of our talks before, which is when I walked through that hospital so confident hospital, in the middle of the night. I almost brought it up myself. Yeah, no one questioned me because I walked through like I own the place and people thought, okay, she must know where she's going. I'm not going to ask her. And then when you started performing that random surgery. Yeah, yeah, people let me do it and it went great. Number of people who tackled you, zero. <laughs> but it's just like, it, it's interesting because confidence is such a hard thing for human beings to muster, including myself in, in a lot of situations. But if you can act super confident, people don't question you. And mm. that's what happened here. He just, he was so confident, probably in his own crazy brain too, that this was just this incredible thing that was going to work, that people didn't feel like they had to go and, and check on him. So yeah, really, really sad and unfortunate for those patients who suffered. It was it's a sad story for them. That movie, Catch Me If You Can, Steven Spielberg movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, yeah, yep. I have not actually seen it, but I know that a friend of mine has told me several times about a scene in which at one point the character that DiCaprio is playing walks into an operating room, more or less, and the doctors defer to him. And by just being like, come on, I thought you were doctors. I thought you knew what you were doing here. I thought you were here to impress me, basically. And they all just fall over themselves instantly. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, no, we'll take care of this. You know, you can oversee our work. And, hmm. you know, turns it around on them. And they're just like, oh, I can't believe we were so stupid in front of doctor whatever. You know, that's what you said about confidence, right? Yep. If you have this perception that, oh, this guy is this amazing doctor, then everything he does is just right. It's just the halo effect. And uh, they assume that what they're doing is wrong. They're the foolish ones and exactly. will totally let yep. themselves be I, I, led around by the nose. I agree. Um, and, and, you know, I have to say there's doctors that I work with personally that make me feel that way. There's some doctors who talk to me like I'm a human being and they make me feel comfortable. And while I recognize that they are much more educated than me and they know a lot more than me in the medical field, they'll talk to me like I'm a human and like we can discuss things and they'll ask my opinions. And there's some that are so intimidating that I literally – struggle to not stutter when I talk to them. Mm. And it drives me nuts because I will be in my room thinking, okay, I got to go talk to this doctor about this. I'm going to go in confident, blah, blah. And then I get there and I struggle 
to talk to them because they're so intimidating, which is how I imagine Dr. Mac- well, I'm not even going to call him doctor. Fuck that. Mr. Idiot Macarini, whatever his name is, was Paolo Macarini. Because I think that he just came off like he thought he was a god. I mean, he literally thought he was a god. And he had that energy over people. So no one thought, I'm going to question him. I don't buy it, you know. And he had enough fake proof in his pocket that people, it looked very convincing. What threw me for a loop was that he wasn't just performing a procedure. It involved essentially an entire medical appliance. And that's when I was like, hold on a second. I could see how you could go in there and be like, well, no, I've got this way of doing it. I just have this technique that's totally my own and it's, it's difficult to teach. And you know, you, you really have to get into the weeds to try to explain it to someone. Right. But trust me, I can do this. And if it was something like that, I could understand how it would be easier to bluff. So obviously hindsight is uh, twenty twenty. but I was just like, how could a doctor walk into a place and be like, oh yeah, I not only have a procedure, but I have a device. I have essentially invented a medical appliance that is totally unique and can be used for this procedure. My first question would be like, okay, you were a world famous doctor, mad respect. Are you also an inventor? Do you have funding? Did a company give you the resources to do this? Where did you do it? Like, where did you create it? Mm-hmm. And if you created it because you're an inventor, okay, fine. And you've got corporate backing because you're well respected. Right. Let's see your trials. Let's see your data. And yes, the series did get into that, where some people did finally get a look at the research, I guess, and that red flag went up immediately, according to that one individual who was like, yeah. uh, where are the animal trials? Yeah. A report like this should have animal trials, and this simply doesn't, so red flag. Yep. I don't want to say that no one caught him. But just way too late. Maybe it's because like I'm very aware of the halo effect, but being an inventor and being a doctor are not the same thing. There can be overlap, certainly, But the idea that he just shows up with essentially a new product and I'd be like, okay, I totally trust you and your ability to install it. But, you know, let's see the specs on it. Let's see. Let's see the lab trials on this new thing that you and only you have created and can supposedly put into a human being successfully. Yeah. Just kind of blew my mind that in this day and age, you can still get away with that in the medical industry. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you need something to call him instead, as you were poking fun at the way people talk in the last episode and I was thinking to myself hmm should I intervene here ah they're just Italian it'll be fine it's Paolo Macchiarini which Hill Street makes him a I hate to say it but he's a what are you saying starts with a p starts with a p Paisan. Oh, God. <laughs> he's a Paisan. well I'll let you say it this episode all you copy that <laughs> On a happier note, did you watch Dr. Giggles? I did. What did you think? I mean, it's the spoofiest, campiest thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. I feel like there was some Sam Raimi influence, quite possibly. Yeah. Granted, I'm tempted to think that because the actor Larry Drake, who played Dr. Giggles, the titular Dr. Giggles, Mm -hmm. the eponymous Dr. Giggles, (laughs) he was in Sam Raimi's Darkman. Did you ever happen to see that movie? No. He was also a bad guy in Darkman. Okay. These were both movies that I remember distinctly, partly because of Larry Drake and the fact that I knew him primarily from the TV show L.A. Law, which I only saw, you know, in passing because it wasn't the kind of show that would have appealed to me at the age I was when it was on. But he played a, uh, a gentleman who was a little bit mentally slow 
and it was just such a wildly different character for him to play Dr. Giggles and then this over-the-top villain in a Sam Raimi movie. Uh So always kind of stuck with me. Yeah. When we talked about your phone and the poster for Chucky that you have as a wallpaper for it, Uh Dr. Giggles was another one of those posters, much like that same Child's Play poster that you use for wallpaper that was just kind of, it seems like it was on the wall for years at the local video store. Like, I'm sure it wasn't. And after I saw the poster, it was probably just seeing like the box art itself, but the box art, you know, was the exact same image. So it would just be one of those images I would see over and over again and just sort of was burned into my brain as a child. (laughs) Always just kind of wondering, much like Friday the 13th, the series, like, what is this thing? I I have to see this someday. I don't think it will be amazing or change my life, but, but I must see it. That's funny. What else did you think of it? There was a few things that I thought were clever. Um, I really, really liked the kid coming out of the mom. That was my favorite part. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I thought that was something like interesting and clever that I have never seen in a movie before. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, no, it, it was. It was absolutely amazing. I didn't think that would be your cup of tea. And I admit when it first started happening, I was like, what is going on here? Same. At that point, I didn't realize that the idea that he was smuggled out was sort of part of his backstory. Right, same. Yeah. Much like Friday the 13th, the series, I spent much of Dr. Giggles kind of questioning one particular aspect, only to then having to shut my fool mouth. Through much of the movie, he's just kind of running around on the loose. And I kept expecting them to be like, well, we know who he is. Like, go track him down. We know who his dad was. We know his name. He's a mental patient. We have his records. Like, they know who Michael Myers is. Right. And like, when he breaks out of the asylum in any Halloween film, they're like, okay, we got to go get Michael. We know his name. We know who he's probably going after. Let's go track him down. And then it just becomes a case of can they do that successfully or how quickly can they get to him? But with this, he seemed to be just kind of walking around with impunity and he kind of only existed as a local legend. And I'm like, how can he be like a local legend? It's definitive. He's been captured. He has a name. He's in an asylum. But then yeah. later they're like, oh, no, this kid showed up without parents and we brought him into the asylum and we know he's crazy. So we keep him here but we don't actually know who he is. Like, okay, you know what? Foot's in my mouth. You win, movie. (laughs) It had some really strange parts that I'm not sure why they were in there. The number one part being the boyfriend cheating on the girl. I have no idea why they put that in. It was... (laughs) random and never played a part of the movie again so because that's what young people do hill street they leave the carnival and they go to the high school music room and then (laughs) and then they (laughs) fillate saxophones i was like so confused by that because the lead girl had this boyfriend that was like very devoted to her and telling her he loved her and he wanted to know about her surgery and she by the way was very rude in that scene on the ferris wheel he was like why didn't you tell me what's going on and she like wouldn't look at him and he's like i love you and she's like i need to be alone and stormed off and i was like uh rude excuse me (laughs) you should appreciate him so she leaves he boy did he get his revenge he goes to the high school with this girl who's looks like she wants to eat him and yeah she does the super inappropriate thing with the saxophone and they just literally fall to the ground rolling around making out i was like what the hell is happening yeah with like 20 other people hanging out in the music room in this high school yeah with everyone watching him cheat on his girlfriend which you think he would have been self-conscious about but Nope. And um, yeah, the fact that they were even back in the music room was just so weird. And it just didn't fit his character at all. He didn't seem like a slime ball. And it's not like he got drunk and like something happened. It just seemed very like he didn't have any qualms about it at all. And then she finds out he's cheating. And 
the second she finds out he's devastated he wants her back the rest of the movie he is fiercely protective and wants her to be safe and he's defending his girlfriend and i was like what was the point of that bizarre (laughs) creepy sexual scene where he cheated on her it was just so weird am i right or am i right because i think i'm right yeah and they didn't even milk it for like nudity i know there was zero nudity in the whole movie even when they were putting the monitor on her to check her heart where they could have ripped her shirt open and had her boobs out which i'm so glad they did not do and i'm very appreciative for any movie that does not add nudity in it because i that always offends me they didn't do it no so i was like what was the point of that scene i mean honestly i mean i, I would almost go so far as to say they, they almost went too far in not doing it to the point where you're like okay well that just doesn't look right like that doesn't look possible or feasible given that he's about to you know actually crack her chest open yeah I know. But yeah, like you said, good on them. You know, good for the actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, very respectful. Yeah, it was really strange. Yeah, but why include the cheating otherwise when by horror film standards, boyfriend was pretty good dude. And actually, I mean, most characters in this were like dad was a good dude. Stepmom was, you know, Shitty. a film stepmom. So, okay, she had to be a little bit evil. Yep. Did you like the two main cops as much as I did? Yes, I thought they were both really strong actors and they had a nice contrast. One was like more the quiet, subtle thinker and one was like the pissed off. Yeah, I liked them both a lot. Yeah, because I mean, on the one hand, I feel like they were maybe playing on the trope of the time of the white cop and the black cop working together. But this time you had an old white dude and a young black guy and they were just cool. Yep. There were no like lame attempts at humor. There was, you know, there wasn't constant jokes about the age. There wasn't jokes about the racial differences. They were just cool and seemed like they were kind of best buds and it was kind of adorable. Yeah, I liked them a lot. I told you there were two things I really liked. I really liked the kid coming out of the mom and I really liked the whole fun house thing, which. Yes, the fun house was amazing. Yeah, they did it really well. When they first went in there, I was like, oh, another fun house scene in a scary movie. But I thought this one was really, really well done. I liked it. Some of the sections of the maze were not mirrors or open space. They were like plexiglass. Yep. Obviously, that made for some fun shots where characters are trapped and want to get through and they can see what's happening, but they can't actually get to the person. So that was cool. Mm-hmm. And then when they would do the split screen, we have three Dr. Giggles or three of the protagonists coupled with the interesting lighting that was going on aspects of this film that in particular kind of reminded me a little bit of have you ever seen peewee's big adventure yep and i thought of the same thing like are you thinking of the clown surgery sequences like the yep not a dream sequence but basically nightmare sequences that peewee has yep where they like do surgery on his bike and stuff yeah <laughs> It seems so condescending when you say it, <laughs> but, but, but yes, yes, exactly. Uh, those sequences, um, I actually forgot about the fact that they operated. I was, I was focused more on the nightmare clown surgeons because of Dr. Giggles, but yes, you're right. They are taking apart his bike, aren't they? Yes, they are. <laughs> I was thinking the, uh, the fun house mirror May sequence had aspects of Pee-wee's big adventure nightmare sequences and a little bit, of course, uh, like Beetlejuice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it, it did It did seem a lot like that, but they did quite a nice job with how they shot it. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, some fun angles. There's that one bit where Dr. Giggles must be walking on a plexiglass floor and they're shooting the lowest extreme angle I have ever seen in a film, <laughs> almost literally straight up. Yeah. Visually very interesting, but uh, did the ADR dialogue bother you as much as it did me? And it seemed really frequent. ADR dialogue? Basically, it's when they either didn't record sync sound on the set or they recorded it, but it sounded like crap. So they went into the studio afterward and re-recorded the dialogue. Gotcha. So like the lips weren't always in sync. 
I read subtitles because I'm hard of hearing, so I feel like I probably miss that more than other people do. Yeah, it's not honestly something that bothers me in movies and TV shows as much as it bothers a lot of other people, but this one did it a lot, and I don't think it was done particularly well, so I, I definitely noticed it. Mm. It seemed to be mostly in the group scenes. Yeah. First time there was a bunch of high schoolers together, I think, when they were like making out at that spot in the woods, and then later at the carnival. The carnival makes sense. They probably just had all that noise from the machine, so they had to re-record it. The woods, I'm not quite so sure about. Right. I'm convinced, though, that David Fincher stole this film's opening sequence for Fight Club. <laughs> that CGI bit where we're going through the blood, through the heart, and then through the opening in the chest into his fantasy sequence where he's performing surgery in the insane asylum. My other favorite moment, as stupid as it was, was all the patients looking in through the gallery. That was kind of cute. Yeah, again, some really interesting compositions, very stylized in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm tempted to say, huh, the CGI back in the early 90s, uh, so terrible. But I mean, honestly, I kind of look at it the other way around. I'm like, you know, I see a lot of films these days where it seems like the CGI hasn't actually improved that much. Yeah. Like at least back then, the CGI was kind of basic and therefore it's kind of stylized and almost interesting in that respect. It's like looking at a primitive painting, kind of interesting for what it actually is, right. the stylization of it, as opposed to something that's just trying to be realistic and failing. Yeah, I get that. I think my least favorite thing about the movie, and, and I mean, truly, Dr. Giggles is like a little too silly for me. So, like the character himself. So, anything that like annoyed me was probably him. But my least favorite thing about it was their constant obsession with the medical saying puns that he had to say every five seconds. Like, it's time for you to take your medicine. Is it my bedside manner? I think I'm being called to surgery. You'll just feel a whatever. You know what I mean? Like, the, the um, I think your blood pressure's rising. Like, it's like every sentence that came out of his mouth had to be like a really cheesy medical phrase. I need to take your temperature. It was like... It drove me nuts. They were way too many. They could have cut them in half and it still would have been too many. I was like, these are stupid and they're annoying and there were way too many. And he delivered them all the same. It kind of drove me nuts. Yeah, unfortunately, I think this film is just a product of its time coming on the heels of 80s action flicks, Schwarzenegger movies, and of course, Nightmare on Elm Street. You just had to put a bow on every kill with a pithy little one-liner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In like the last 20 minutes, I was like, if he says one more fucking medical doctor one-liner... I'm going to smack him in the mouth. And it just kept coming and coming and coming. Um, that <laughs> drove me nuts about him. And also, they call him Dr. Giggles, but his weird <laughs> thing that he does, he's not actually giggling, really. He doesn't smile or move his mouth. He just makes a weird sound. Very rarely does he look like he's actually giggling. So it kind of irritated me. I kind of thought about that, too, where it seemed like Dr. Eagles almost makes you think it's going to be like a clown horror story, mm -hmm. but he's a doctor, but doctors aren't known for giggling, so it really is just a fancy way of saying that he's insane. It should be called Doctor Has a Tick, because he's not. <laughs> <laughs> he's not laughing. He's just going, me, making this weird sound where he doesn't even remotely smile. I'm like, he doesn't seem like he's laughing. He's just making a weird-ass sound. Wow, if only you were in charge of their marketing, Hill Street. <laughs> hey, Hollywood, you're going to want to hear this. <laughs> Dr. Giggles was directed by a guy by the name of Manny Coto, C-O-T-O. One, he has the coolest IMDb profile photo I've ever seen. Him sitting in casual clothes on, like, a two-story throne of bones. That's cool. Seriously, check it out. I think you would dig it. And if you've got a vaulted ceiling in your family room or something... Maybe think about picking one up. 
He wrote and directed an episode of American Horror Story and then okay. an episode of American Horror Stories. Gotcha. I guess some little like special that they spun off from the main storylines. They're different. Exactly. I figure you're the expert on that. Maybe you can fill me in on what that's all about. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> there you go. There's that slang I need. <laughs> get me in touch with the youth, Hill Street. <laughs> uh, he also wrote an episode of Dexter, apparently. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, overall, I thought it was fun. I think it's a good example of how editing can kind of make your movie. Like, even if it's not great, if you keep up that pacing, you just keep the story moving, it can still be a fun time. I mean, this thing this thing starts in Medea's murder oh. and just continues from there. Yeah, I literally felt like I'd watched half the movie in the first two minutes. So much happened so fast. I was like, the pacing on this is fucking gold. Yeah, I was like, oh man, if this is going to be the whole thing, this is actually going to be a pretty fun time. And I mean, for the most part, it was. There weren't a lot of like down moments. Which is how I like it. Let's move and let's move fast and hard. That's right. Time is money, people. That's right. Yeah, I enjoyed the pacing for sure. Yeah, when I watched that, I was like, all right, well, Hill Street might not love this, but it's all going to be okay because at least it'll be over soon. Exactly. (laughs) There's not too much for her to hate. <coughs> Why am I coughing? Because we're recording. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Yep, sounds right. <laughs> Something about the microphone that just brings out the cough and the runny nose and the yep. watery eyes and the cracky voice. And the misery. An aspect of Dr. Giggles that reminded me a little bit of Friday the 13th, the series was, yes, technically, like, two cops are looking for him, but Mm -hmm. shouldn't the whole city be on high alert? Shouldn't there be extra police posted at the carnival? Yeah. Extra patrol car? Shouldn't we be getting into overtime? Really? Shouldn't the FBI be here at this point? Let's be real. A madman has escaped and people are dying, and it's just the two cops that happen to be called in because of a nosy neighbor. I mean, we're talking mass murders here. Like, people are dying in huge quantities at this point. The FBI I should be here but yeah and that was the one kill that I thought actually could have gone a little bit quicker was the uh, neighbor lady that phoned the police in the first place Mm -hmm. after she got injected she brings the newspaper up and I'm like oh cool she brings the newspaper up and then when she lowers it like her face is going to be all messed up because of whatever she was injected with yeah I'm sorry not injected she uh, he switched her pill that's Mm -hmm. what it was Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a precursor to the matrix he switched a red pill for a blue pill yep and uh, yeah when she brings the newspaper up I'm like oh it's going to be like acid or something and she's going to lower it and we're going to see something like the mask side of they live (laughs) but no she just drops it and then crawls along the ground and they kind of drug that one out a little bit yeah they did one of the exceptions though yeah he likes stabbing people with skinny sharp things like pencil type things there was a lot of that thought the examination device that he put up her nose was going to be more of a drill situation, but no, I guess it was just kind of pointy and therefore it went straight into the brain. Straight lobotomy. Fair number of likable characters. Protagonist, kind of a jerk to the boyfriend in that one scene, but overall she was heads and tails better than a lot of protagonists in some of the later Friday the 13th entries, I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dad was a good guy. Even when the stepmom's like, I don't worry about her. He's like, no, my daughter has a heart condition and she's out somewhere. Like, I'm going to go find her and take care of her. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I liked him. Good guy. Nice guy. Incredible lover, apparently. (laughs) Good for him. Yep. (laughs) He's a king. (laughs) Got to bring him home to meet mom. There's a keeper. (laughs) Lady, you don't know what you got in this man. (laughs) Campy is all get out. But I mean, you know, kind of like the best episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Campy and fun. Yep. And I mean, honestly, I feel like it's a great choice to put on it like a Halloween party or something. Yeah, totally. One that people haven't seen, you know, a million times. You can just kind of throw it on and everyone can enjoy it. There's no nudity or sex and there's just some fun kills and some good times. So I would actually recommend it. 
It certainly didn't have the pretensions of needful things. Right. This one had a fun opening credit sequence that had CGI voyage through a circulatory system straight into a highly stylized murder sequence, whereas needful things began with an opening title sequence that was like, what if a Rothko painting was an opening title sequence? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It knew what it was. It didn't try to hide it. And I respect that. I agree. Next episode, we're getting a boxing episode of Friday the 13th, the series. Ooh, spicy. Yeah, and I got to say, the way the deaths are carried out, kind of amazing. Good. I seriously, legitimately like the way that they're executed. That's cool. Yeah, and I think you'll know what I mean when you see it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th, the series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. Jason takes Manhattan had a boxer, so maybe Jason will show up next week for Synergy. Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music and to Stephen Yu for original art. And be sure to check out the Joe on Joe podcast, the only podcast where Joe Slepsky discusses G.I. Joe. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to know exactly how behind schedule our latest episode will be, you can find social media links on our website. Since next week is a boxing episode, I'll share my own creepy boxing anecdote. Take care until then. And always remember what Carl said to Frylock. It don't matter. None of this matters. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.